The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Learning that you have cancer can be terrifying. And every two seconds, somewhere in the world, another person gets the diagnosis. That's four people just since I started talking. But there are places where the fear of dying from cancer is amplified by an added, treacherous risk. That the cancer treatment will bring on a deadly infection from a killer superbug that even the most potent antibiotics available are powerless to tame. It's called extreme drug resistance, and it can create a devastating dilemma for some patients. The treatment for their tumors may kill them faster than the tumors themselves. Welcome to Prognosis, a podcast about health and science, medical technology, and the changes that are underway across the world. I'm your host, Michelle Faye Cortez. This season, we're examining one of the dangers that keeps public health officials awake at night. It's been described as a silent tsunami of catastrophic proportions, one of the gravest threats to human health. I'm talking about antimicrobial resistance, more commonly known as the irreversible rise of superbugs. The waning potency of critical antibiotics is happening faster than even the most dire forecasts. Tragically, cancer patients are at the front line of this global emergency. The conundrum is playing out sporadically in hospitals in many countries, portending a global problem. One doctor in India is sounding the alarm, even as he works tirelessly to arrest this unfolding crisis. Here's Bloomberg's Jason Gale with the story. Abdul Ghaffur was raised in the South Indian state of Kerala, beside a river and rice fields that stretched as far as the eye could see. He'd often hold the hand of his grandfather, who was blind since early youth, and guide him along the narrow paths across the farm. School was in a local village where Gaffour was inspired to become a teacher, but he was emboldened to reach even higher by the Missile Man of India. APJ Abdul Kalam was a rocket scientist from humble beginnings who eventually became president of India. His example encouraged the young student to train instead to be a doctor. The meaning of the word doctor, dosir, that is to teach. A doctor is a teacher, not just a healer. I always wanted to become a teacher and I became a doctor. So I am a teacher and a doctor. To be a doctor is a noble profession. Patients come to you with their complaints. You examine them. You do the necessary investigations and find out what's wrong with them. You prescribe them medication and do the other necessary medical interventions. And you get a satisfaction when you treat patients because you are curing their ailments. And as a human being, you're helping your fellow human beings. Dr. Kafour is now in his 40s. He's an infectious diseases physician and clinical microbiologist in Chennai. 
the largest city in southern India. The satisfaction Dr. Gafoor said he gets from treating his patients? Well, it's fading. And the reason it's fading is because it's becoming harder to save his patients from diseases like cancer. And it's not the cancer itself that is becoming more and more of a threat to his patients. It's the infections that can come after chemotherapy. Dr. Gafoor remembers one case not too long ago, a 20-year-old college student with acute myeloid leukemia. It's one of the worst type of cancer you can get. One of the worst type of blood cancer you get. While the treatment would give him more time, it's punishingly aggressive. The young man will be left with no immunity for weeks, leaving him vulnerable to infections, especially from bacteria he's carrying inside him. Well, they are expecting us to cure their cancer with chemotherapy and there are wonderful chemotherapy drugs. And then we are explaining to the family, yeah, your cancer will be controlled, but then you may die of infection. The outlook is grim either way. It's a choice between certain death from one threat and the possibility of a faster death from another. The student undergoes chemotherapy and the chemo, as expected, wipes out the white blood cells needed to defend against the bacteria entering his bloodstream. On one end, you don't have immunity and on the other end, you have got uh, billions or trillions of bacteria waiting to jump and jumping into your blood where there's no defense. What will happen? We give antibiotic, and if the bugs, even if you give antibiotic, the death rate is 20 to 30 percentage. And as expected, the bacteria get into the patient's blood. Dr. Gafford tries to fight back. He knows the bacteria are resistant to the most potent antibiotic available. So he tries another, colistin. It's a last resort option, and it subdues the infection, but barely. Dr. Gafour is still giving the same drug and the infection is still lingering. And then it happens. A single bacterium undergoes a genetic mutation, giving it resistance to that last resort antibiotic. It multiplies exponentially and it soon becomes the dominant strain poisoning his bloodstream. And Dr. Gafour is almost out of options. He has one last hope a cocktail of antibiotics, ones that administered by themselves wouldn't work, but together could do something. This is a desperate attempt we call combination therapy, combination of antibiotics, and still the patient will die. The chance of the patient dying is more than 80% in this scenario. And tragically, as expected, the young man dies. For me, it's become a daily issue. If you ask me the number of patients I've seen dying due to drug-resistant infection, it's on a daily basis. So many of my patients, cancer patients, die due to drug resistance after chemotherapy. For me, it's a day-to-day scenario. Those multi-drug-resistant bacteria, those superbugs, are proliferating globally on all continents and in all countries. But in few places is the problem more worrisome than in India. Here, drug resistance has reached extreme levels. That's because of the massive use of antibiotics, coupled with poor hygiene and sanitation. The devastating impact that's having on cancer patients has turned Dr. Gafoor into one of India's 
fiercest crusaders on the subject. We are facing a difficult scenario to give chemotherapy and cure the cancer and get a drug-resistant infection and the patient dying of infections. We don't know what to do. The world doesn't know what to do in this scenario. If you're talking about the post-antibiotic era, you first see that in cancer patients. Because cancer patients are the most vulnerable group of patients you can ever come across in your clinical practice. Dr. Gafour posts regularly about their suffering on Twitter and LinkedIn. Discussing superbugs is a sensitive and politically charged subject in India. It risks casting a shadow over the country's medical tourism industry, which the Indian government predicts could bring in $9 billion a year by 2020. The superbug crisis is probably highest in countries like India. The situation is getting worse, definitely getting worse because the drug resistance rate, the superbug rate is increasing on a daily basis. So the number of patients dying are really high. Scientists have measured the burden of drug resistance in India in various ways. One has been to count the number of babies dying from sepsis as a result of a bacterial bloodstream infection not cured with antibiotics. An Indian newborn dies every 10 minutes that way. It works out to more than 58,000 babies a year. No one is immune. In Dr. Gafoor's home state of Tamil Nadu, the former chief minister, a celebrated actress, died in late 2016 from an unstoppable bloodstream infection. I work with cancer patients, a group of patients with the lowest level of immunity. And if you don't have antibiotics to treat infections in cancer patients, you are in a very difficult scenario. Infection can be in the chest, it can be in the brain, it can be abdomen, it can be urine, it can be blood, it can be anywhere. And if you don't have antibiotics to treat these infections, basically these patients die in front of your eyes. Around the world, at least 700,000 people die annually from drug-resistant infections. That number will balloon to 10 million deaths a year by 2050 and will cost the world more than $100 trillion in lost economic output without corrective actions. That's according to a review led by former Goldman Sachs economist Jim O'Neill three years ago. Lord O'Neill is the British economist who coined the term BRIC as a reference to Brazil, Russia, India and China. These rapidly emerging markets have become symbols of the shift in economic power toward the developing world. As chairman of Goldman Sachs' asset management division, he oversaw more than $800 billion of investments. In 2014, the then UK Prime Minister David Cameron asked him to focus on the antimicrobial resistance crisis. Lord O'Neill knew little about the subject back then, but he had the finance acumen to demonstrate its significance and to make the economic argument for tackling it. I recently caught up with him to ask Lord O'Neill about the findings of his 2016 review and the impact it's had since its release. What we suggested is happening quicker than, if anything, than we said could eventually happen. So am I surprised? Not really, because it's kind of what we said could happen, but it seems to be growing evidence that it's happening quicker. 
Uh, and I think it's a sign of the scale of the resistance problem. Lord O'Neill's review predicted that by 2050, more people will die from superbug infections than from cancer and diabetes combined. Still, none of that seems to be corralling the kind of action he and his team call for. Their recommendations were for $42 billion to be spent over 10 years to boost the supply of new medicines, vaccines and diagnostic tools and introduce mechanisms to reduce the demand for antibiotics. What it really tells me is that no governments anywhere really want to spend any money on particularly giving incentives for new useful drugs to be found and developed. I don't think they understand the urgency of it. Oh, it's clearly not a major priority. And uh, I think a major dilemma of modern life is that in parallel with this, governments don't like to spend money on prevention and they end up spending more rather wastefully on on, on response to outbreak. And it's, it's really quite stupid. Before the 1940s, something as simple as a scratched knee could turn into a festering sore that risked ending in fatal septic shock. Antibiotics changed that, and in just one generation added decades to average life expectancy. These drugs literally laid the foundation for modern medicine. Surgery, organ transplants, chemotherapy and C-sections could be performed with a high degree of safety thanks to the bacteria-stopping ability of antibiotics. The life-extending opportunities afforded by these wonder drugs have always been precarious. Almost as soon as scientists discovered ways to nuke bacteria with antibiotics, they were disappointed to learn bacteria could muster ways to nuke antibiotics in return. For the past 80 years, humans and bacteria have been locked in a race for survival. Between the 1950s and 70s, a slew of new antibiotics put humans clearly ahead. But that lead is being lost in startling and horrifying ways. The development of new antibiotics has virtually dried up as drug makers focused on more lucrative medicines, such as those for treating cancer, cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Bacteria have seized the opportunity to exert one of their most powerful advantages over humans, three and a half billion years of evolution on this planet. It's allowed these microbes to amass a treasure trove of genetic tools to evade every kind of weapon thrown at them. And bacteria share their drug-evading genes freely and easily with germs from the same and different species. These genes are often carried on the microbial equivalent of a thumb drive. That enables one bacterium to quickly and efficiently pass, for example, the blueprint for nine different mechanisms of drug resistance to another germ. These fortifying genes have spread like wildfire in response to antibiotics. We use and abuse these miracle cures on a daily basis. We take them when they're not needed, like for viral infections. We use them to fatten farm animals faster. We spray them on crops and we dump them in drains and rivers, contaminating the environment. All of that contributes to the rise and rise of disease-causing germs that are hard, expensive, and in some cases, impossible to treat. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha 
for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Dr. Gafoor spent five years training at London's Royal Free Hospital, an institution with a long history where thousands of cholera patients were treated in the early 1800s. He returned to India more than a decade ago. Back home, Dr. Gafoor was alarmed to find about 1-2% to of infections among hospital patients were caused by an extreme form of drug-resistant bacteria. When I came back to India in 2008... People like me and many, many of us started talking about, oh, the superbug crisis is going to happen. It's going to be a catastrophic crisis in a few years' time. One of the reasons why Dr. Gaffour saw this superbug crisis unfold as quickly as it did has to do with how bacteria spread and how harmless germs can turn into untreatable pathogens. Species like E. coli and Klebsiella pneumoniae carried in our gastrointestinal tracts. They aid digestion and vitamin production. These friendly bacteria are also in animals, and they're in fecal matter, which we uh, dispense, including the family dog. The bathroom is often the nexus. Each person sheds an estimated 30 trillion bacterial cells daily in their feces. Airborne germs, known as toilet plume aerosols are created when the bacteria are hit with a flush of water. Then they can land on surfaces, creating what the late Elmer Pfefferkorn, a microbiologist from Dartmouth Medical School, described as a fecal veneer. In places where people defecate in the open and sewage isn't properly handled and treated, that veneer is more like a shag pile carpet. And it means fecal germs are readily ingested via contaminated food and water. If you've had traveller's diarrhoea, it was most probably caused by E. coli, a prime fecal germ. Gross, right? But it helps explain how the most resistant superbugs entered the public water supply in places like New Delhi, reside in the bodies of tens of millions of people, and have emerged as global public health enemy number one. If your sanitation scenario is not good in the community, the superbugs spread in the water systems. Superbugs spread in the environment. Healthy people ingest, eat these superbugs in the food and water. India's toilet shortage has contributed to a sanitation crisis that stoked the superbug crisis. Prime Minister Narendra Modi is trying to fix that with the largest toilet building spree in human history. Well, that's great news for public health and could eventually make a huge difference. For now, potentially deadly germs continue to invade people's systems. There's an easy way to tell if someone is harboring drug-resistant bacteria in their bowel. You test their waste. Three years ago, Dr. Gaffour and colleagues collected a 1,000 stool samples from healthy adult volunteers across three cities. They found one in every 15 urban Indians carry in their intestines and shed in their stool common bacteria that are resistant to a class of last-line antibiotics known as carbapenem. When doctors use a carbapenem, it typically means none of the standard therapies work. 
And if superbugs that are resistant to carbapenems are spreading in the environment and contaminating food and water, it accelerates the loss of a critical treatment doctors like Gafoor can use. Carbapenem is the most potent antibiotic available in the clinical practice. We can call the extremely drug-resistant bacteria. They are not hospital bugs. They got from the food and water they consume every day. The bacteria like E. coli, Klebsiella, are normal bacteria of your intestine. If they get an opportunity to enter the blood, of course, then it's severe sepsis, severe infection. If you don't treat, you will die of this infection. But it's not just the food and water that's causing India's superbug crisis. India is the world's largest manufacturer and user of antibiotics for human health. And it's the fourth biggest user in food-producing animals. These drugs are easy to get, often obtainable without a prescription. And that means it's easy for bacteria to develop resistance. The problem in India is it's not regulated. That's Dr. Bhavna Sirui. She's worked in medical oncology in India and the UK for 25 years. I first interviewed her in New Delhi for a story on superbugs a decade ago, and we've kept in touch. So if I go up to a pharmacy, or if I even phone call a pharmacy, they will deliver the antibiotics at home. And, and that's a fact, definitely in small towns, which is wrong. There should be some form of regulation for prescription of antibiotics. What the indiscriminate use of antibiotics does is it promotes antibiotic resistance. We know that. Dr. Sirui isn't seeing in her practice the same levels of extreme drug resistance that Dr. Gafoor and other specialists around India have reported. But she's alert to the problem. In London, Dr. Sirui would consult via Skype to reduce her patients' travel costs. In India, she does this to minimise her patients' contact with healthcare facilities where Superbugs are concentrated in sick patients and can spread because of inadequate cleaning and infection control practices. Antibiotic resistance is is a huge concern for both oncologists and cancer patients worldwide, whether it's, it's in UK or India. One of the commonest side effects of treatment is that the patients are immunocompromised. Antibiotic resistance is, is a discussion that we have to have with all patients that are going to undergo immunosuppressive treatment. If a patient gets an infection with a multidrug resistant organism and we're not able to treat that infection, the cancer may be curable, but we lose the patient to the infection, which is unacceptable in this day and age. So I think antibiotic resistance is a huge concern for all of us. Cancer treatment breaches the body's natural defences in multiple ways. For instance, the skin gets pierced when a needle is inserted for an intravenous infusion. But there's a critical vulnerability patients face when they undergo chemotherapy. Those potent drugs target cells that grow and divide quickly, as cancer cells do. But there's often some collateral damage to healthy cells too. Hair can fall out, and the mucous membrane that lines the digestive tract from the mouth to the anus can effectively slough off. Injury to that protective barrier can enable bacteria from the gastrointestinal tract to enter the bloodstream and cause an infection. Bloodstream infections are very common in cancer patients with low white blood cell levels. When the culprit is a carbapenem-resistant germ, Up to two-thirds of patients die, one study found. 
In New Delhi, almost three quarters of patients with leukemia and other blood cancers harbour those dangerous bugs. Here's Dr. Abdul Ghaffour again. The death rate of patients with carbapenem resistant superbug in the blood is anywhere 60 to 70 percentage. So if I, if I have a cancer chemotherapy patient with a, a carbapenem resistant superbug Klebsiella in the blood, I can predict the chance of that patient dying is 60 percentage or more. If that is also cholestin resistant, I can predict the chance of that patient is dying is 80 percentage or more. That means a patient is getting this infection, most likely these patients will die. And this has become a, a daily routine for people like me in countries with high superbug rates. We are literally living in post-antibiotic era, especially in South Asia and Mediterranean countries. And Dr. Gafour reminds us that creating awareness and changing behaviour is a mammoth task. India is a large country, 1.3 billion population, 75,000 hospitals, 1 million doctors, half a million pharmacies. It is a huge challenge. The present momentum is not enough. We need to really understand the magnitude of the challenge and find solution on the ground. That's not really happening. Dr. Gaffour has spent years speaking about the issue. In 2012, he convened a symposium that led to a national roadmap to tackle the problem. Dr. Gaffour was lauded internationally for taking positive action, but it put him in the crosshairs of some of India's healthcare businesses. Dr. Gaffour himself works in a private hospital. Many of my friends in the healthcare industry have told me, what you do is adversely affecting our business. This is my answer to them. No, I'm trying to protect our business because if people like me don't talk, policies won't change. If our patients will die, how can we, how can we sustain an industry? It's a very, very, very difficult scenario. The industry you are trying to protect sometimes blame you and that's a real painful scenario people like me are facing. Dr. Gaffour told me there is progress, but it's slow. In July, the Indian government limited the use of colistin. That drug of last resort was discovered in the 1950s, but doctors quickly stopped using it because of its toxic effects on the kidneys. While humans weren't using colistin, the drug was in popular use on poultry farms where farmers fed it to animals to stave off disease and hasten their growth. But the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare ordered a stop to that practice. The results of that policy are yet to be seen and may be too late. Five years ago, I visited one of India's largest private neonatal intensive care units. Colistin was the go-to drug there for treating babies with sepsis because nothing else worked as well. Two years later, the same hospital had seen two cases of colistin-resistant infections. It's a tragedy familiar to Dr. Gaffour. I used to see patients quite sporadically. Maybe once in six months, once a year, I get this kind of bacteria. We're resistant to everything. That has changed. Now... I treat a colistin-resistant infection once in two weeks. It's nothing unusual for me. So I can't remember the number of patients with pan-regressive infections I have treated. I've treated dozens and dozens of patients with pan-regressive infections in my, my career over the last few years. 
in the last few years for Dr. Gafour, both his missions as a teacher and a doctor have become harder. By speaking out about the crisis, he's faced criticism from within his own industry. And as a doctor, the spread of superbugs has meant his tools for treating his patients are deteriorating. More and more, he sees cases like the young student he couldn't save, and these cases weigh on him. It was actually a a disappointment, because as a doctor, as an infection specialist, living in 21st century, with all the inventions and discoveries in modern medicine, especially oncology, I felt my hands are tied because I can't cure my patient's infection. If I can't cure my patient's infection, however wonderful the field of oncology is, however whatever developments in the field of oncology, they are not going to be useful because we know cancer patients die of infection. But there is still some hope. Aside from the government restricting the use of colistin, there is one possible cocktail that could help in the fight against these extreme superbugs. An intravenous infusion of two antibiotics that Pfizer sells as Zafacefta in combination with another injectable antibiotic which Bristol-Myers Squibb sells as Azactam. I asked a clinical microbiologist in Mumbai if that cocktail is something doctors are already using in India. It's being looked at, she said, but it's extremely expensive, about $300 to $400 a day. That's roughly double what Indians earn per month on average. Government hospitals wouldn't be able to afford it, so patients would have to pay out of pocket, and only the wealthy could pony up that kind of money. There's another critical aspect to treating sepsis in cancer patients, time. Doctors have a limited window, perhaps only 18 hours, to administer the right antibiotic once a patient develops fever to prevent a fatal bloodstream infection. That tends to make doctors err on the side of caution and to use the most powerful drugs available. You can't blame them. They want to save their patient's life. But it's also what's spurring the overuse of critically important antibiotics and driving the superbug crisis. And finally, there's something else. We have no way of knowing how big this crisis really is. When a cancer patient dies from an infection, cancer, not infection, will most likely be the primary diagnosis recorded on the death certificate. So the World Health Organization and its specialist arm, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, have no clue how many people die in this way. Doctors like Gafour say the number is large and growing. The globalised nature of superbugs means cancer patients everywhere will eventually face this horrendous dilemma. this week's prognosis. Thanks for listening. Do you have a story about healthcare in the U.S. or around the world? We want to hear from you. Find me on Twitter 
at FayeCortez or send me an email, mcortez at bloomberg.net. If you were a fan of this episode, please take a moment to rate and review us. It really helps new listeners find the show. And don't forget to subscribe. This episode was produced by Topher Forges. Our story editor was Rick Schein. Special thanks to Ari Alstetter and Ruth Pollard, who helped with the reporting, and Drew Armstrong, our healthcare team leader. Francesca Levy is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll be back next week with a new episode. See you then. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.